Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of BuddhaPod. I'm Catherine. Hello, everybody. I'm Andrew, and today we'll be talking about Buddhist etiquette. So, at my temple, sometimes I take phone calls from、uh, potential first-time visitors, and they ask, "Is there anything that we should wear, or you know, dress like when we go to the temple?" So they're expecting like a lot of rules. When coming to a Buddhist temple, but、um, because our temple is pretty much localized to like the culture here, so we don't have that many rules. But、um, in Buddhism, or especially like in Chinese Buddhism, we have a few rules that people like follow, and it's not just to have rules; it's for the sake of cultivation.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's good to emphasize that. All of these rules and regulations within a monastery all have their purposes, and a lot of times they're to help us、uh, go through with our practice. So the reason, and especially a lot of these rules, have to do with etiquette. So how you walk, how you stand, how you sit,、um, so on and so forth. All of these things have very specific guidelines. And by following them, we can practice being mindful, but also work through a lot of our、uh, bad habits a lot of times.、Mm-hmm, for sure.、Um, so let's talk about what is etiquette. So we'll start with talking about etiquette overall.、Um, so, like as I was saying earlier, etiquette is mostly for our own practice to be mindful of what we're doing. So when we don't have any sort of guideline as to how we conduct ourselves, we can do anything that we want. And so by putting these sort of, and a lot of people will consider them restrictions. By putting these restrictions on ourselves, we see a lot of、um, the pushback that we naturally have, and it brings awareness to a lot of habits that. We might have just ignored if we didn't have these guidelines. Yeah, I completely agree.、Um, and especially in a monastery setting, you're living with a big group of people. So the etiquette is not just to help ourselves, but it is to help other people around us as well. Like it reminds us that we're not the only people in the world, and that we need to respect other people, like their spaces and stuff like that. So. Yeah, etiquette is important, especially in a group setting. I feel definitely, and I think it also、um, a lot of the etiquette is really being courteous of others,、uh, trying to be as quiet as possible to not disturb anybody、um, or to interrupt anybody. Also, being very mindful of what we are、uh, consuming and what we're using, especially because the resources on this. Planet are very limited, and we have to be very mindful of how much we're using. And if we can, we should be as efficient about that as possible. For sure. So I think to go into the most common question we get.、Um, so there is this practice that we do. We do three full bows to the Buddha or three prostrations. And some people see this and they think. Oh gosh! Like, what is this cult? And there's actually a purpose behind it. It is to show our respect to our teacher, which is who is the Buddha, 
and it humbles us because we're putting our head down in front of him. And it's not just bowing to a statue. Because mm-hmm. I think it's like, I like to explain it as um, standing up and putting um, your hand on your chest for the Pledge of Allegiance or for the National Anthem or something like that. Um, the flag doesn't need you to do anything for it, but it's something for us to remind ourselves of certain values that we hold. Maybe that's patriotism, but in Buddhism, it's holding the sense of respect and humility towards the Buddha. Mm-hmm. And when we bow down, like you, we turn our hands. So like there's like a specific way to do bowing. If like you don't know, you can Google it. But um, when you bow down to on the floor or on a cushion or something, we turn our hands towards like we turn our palms up and the two palms, one one hand we're on one hand, we're receiving the Buddha's or we hope to receive the Buddha's wisdom. And on the other hand, we hope to receive the Buddha's compassion. Mm-hmm. So the thing about receiving the Buddha's compassion and wisdom is also in Buddhism, the way that we can start learning is by being humble about where we are and being very honest about how much further we have to go. And so we have to approach Buddhism with the sense of respect to be able to get anything from it. So I think bowing is, and of course, it's the first thing that you do at a temple, right? You go in for the service and the first thing that you do really when the service starts is you bow, you make these prostrations. And so that's where it all starts by being humble, realizing and recognizing that we have a lot to learn from from the Buddha. And that's how we're able to accept his compassion and his wisdom. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important point because like, being aware of our ignorance and not just like going on in our lives thinking that we're perfect. Um, like before I went to like the Buddhist college for six months, like my, the venerable at my temple, she told me like, okay, you need to empty out your glass. Like, and I could never like, before I went, obviously I, I couldn't really understand what she meant. I was just like, okay, I'll empty my glass. My glass is already empty. What she actually meant was that I needed to let go of my my preconceived ideas of what this place will be and my prejudices and like my like I have an idea of what Buddhism is and like what I know and stuff. But she is saying that I need to let all of these go in order to really learn from there, because it is a very different environment in that some people like they can't take it and they leave. But like if you really do humble yourself and that's when you'll get the most out of this experience. So after bowing and seeing people make prostrations to the Buddha, another common thing that you'll see at Buddhist temples everywhere, actually, this isn't restricted to um, Chinese Buddhism. Offerings is just common throughout Buddhism. So something that you'll always see is offerings of flowers or incense, lights and candles and things like that, fruit and food often too. So we have all of these offerings to the Buddha. But again, the Buddha doesn't need any of these offerings. On one hand, they're for us to practice our generosity and practice our giving. But also, a lot of Buddhists will give in hopes of accruing some sort of merit that comes from this practice, sort of 
getting some good deed brownie points from it, which is probably a actually a rather crude way of explaining it. But in one sense, you can think about it like that. However, in Buddhism, especially in the Diamond Sutra, it talks about the merits of making these offerings. And while there is merit in that, there's a lot more merit in understanding the wisdom of the Diamond Sutra, understanding the wisdom that the Buddha is teaching and applying it to our lives and then teaching it to others. And so while material giving accrues some merit, what's really more valuable is this ultimate giving of the Buddhist teachings. And just because I think like understanding the sutra it gives you more merits than offering things, it doesn't mean that we should just not offer anything because that is like a practice that also humbles ourselves and lets us practice generosity. I think for Western Buddhism, like Buddhism that's like common in America and stuff, people will often ignore the religious parts of Buddhism, like offering and vowing and stuff. And they only focus on, you know, understanding sutras or like exploring your spirituality and like only knowing the philosophy of Buddhism. But that's not all of it. So in order for us to practice Buddhism, we we should be practicing the ritual kind of aspects to it, but also the understanding the philosophy. That's how you perfect your practice of Buddhism. So in addition to having this well-rounded practice, and of course, I think I agree that um, in America, especially Buddhism tends to be a lot of intellectual Buddhism and not a lot of practice Buddhism outside of, say, silent meditation. But Buddhism has all of these practices. And I think if we want to have a well-rounded practice, if we want to have this holistic practice, we have to incorporate all of these aspects of the teaching and of uh, the system. And we also have to understand all of them too. So in regards to offerings, and especially with this idea of giving, we can look back at the Diamond Sutra, because it teaches that when we give, we should give without any sorts of attachments to the people that we're giving it to, to the thing that we're giving, and no attachment to us and our status as being the giver, as someone who's given this thing to someone. And because of that, we seem like we're more important for some reason. So by giving without any attachment, again, that's also a lot of merit. But ultimately, when we talk about merit, it's not just the merit that we're looking for, but we're look, we're trying to ultimately benefit all sentient beings through this practice. Yes, for sure. Okay, so speaking about offering and like bowing and stuff, there's another practice in Buddhism that I think a lot of people, well, especially Westerners, they're not really used to this form of worship, which is chanting. So at our temple, we have Chinese chanting for most of them, for most of the month. And then at the end of the month, we have English chanting, which is shorter and it has more meditation. Of course, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's localizing to the culture, which is what, what Buddhism has been doing since like the beginning of its time. But when we talk about chanting, we're talking about Chinese chanting here. And 
if those of you listening who don't know, we like pick a sutra and we read the sutra out loud. And usually a chanting service is pretty long, like one to two hours and sometimes even more, sometimes a whole day if it's like a special Dharma service. But some people have are not used to this practice. Um, I think in Asia is much more common. And so the reason why we do chanting is because when we are reading the sutras out loud, it gives you like it engages you in all different kinds of ways. So like it engages your your visual senses, your verbal senses, your auditory senses and your mind. So ultimately through chanting, you should be able to reach like a state of meditation because it is it is pretty special. It's not it's not anything that I've seen in other religions. Mm-hmm. And the thing about chanting and meditation is that the two have been practiced together uh, a lot in Chinese Buddhism throughout the history of Chinese Buddhism. So my temple um, here in California, every Sunday we have an English Buddhist service after the Chinese Buddhist service. So that way we can have something for both crowds, um, one in Chinese and one in English. And in the English service, sort of like Catherine's, we'll start off with chanting and then we'll have meditation in it and then um, more chanting to finish the service. But this isn't a new invention by any means. It's something that has been a part of Chinese chanting for a long time and with Shan at least, during the seven-day Buddha recitation retreats, it follows that same pattern with chanting, meditation, and chanting. And as I was looking through um, some older books, this wasn't invented by Fo Guangshan either. This has been a thing for at least the past hundred years or so, and probably stretching on a lot longer, where in Chinese Buddhism, chanting and meditation were practiced within the same session. Mm-hmm. And reciting the Buddha's name is also a form of chanting, and that has root in the Amitabha Sutra, actually. It says that if you can chant Amitabha Buddha's name for seven days straight without any um, without any other thoughts in your mind, you'll go to the Western Pure Land. So it's they talk about chanting in the sutras. So it's not something that... Um, I think it's been a practice, like, longer. Um, it has... It's not only in Chinese Buddhism, although the chanting that we do may be different from other sects of Buddhism, but they still they also have like some form of chanting or like vocal thing that they do. Yeah, and I think going back to the aspect of how chanting engages multiple senses. Like I was talking about earlier with the entire idea of etiquette, replacing our individual habits with something that's prescribed. In this case, it's replacing the things that we see throughout the day. All of these things that might be distractions, they might be wholesome, unwholesome, with something that's, well, conveying the wisdom of the Buddhas to us, right? So we're reading, we're engaging our eyes with the the text. We're moving our mouth and our tongue to pronounce these words and speaking the words of the Buddha, and so that's engaging our verbal senses 
And so once we say it, it becomes sound. And so we also hear ourselves saying it, and that engages another sense. And ultimately, throughout this entire time, we're engaging with it mentally as well, because we're understanding it, we're comprehending it, and it's becoming ingrained deeper into our consciousness. So through practice, especially through Buddhist practice, we're transforming ourselves by planting these wholesome seeds in our consciousness and in our mind so that they will outgrow the other influences that come in throughout the day and throughout the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. I feel like after a chanting service, like my mind is more clear than, you know, other times of the day. And I, and if you think about it, you really don't get to do it often. Like maybe you do it like once a week or, you know, sometimes you just go without chanting, like for weeks on end, for whatever reason, if you're busy or something. And it's definitely something that can help you in your cultivation. But also I want to talk about like during chanting, like where your mind's at, because, um, well, there's this little story that I'm going to share with you guys. And it's, um, there's this old lady that used to chant this mantra in Buddhism. And she would always say the last syllable wrong. But she said it, she said it so much, like her mind was in really deep concentration that like, um, the bowl of beans in front of her, it would like, the beans would like jump to the other bowl. That's how like every time she said that mantra, that one bean would jump from one bowl to the other. Um, and then one day there was someone that heard her like chant this mantra and they said, Oh, you know, you're doing that wrong. Right. And she's like, what? I've been doing it wrong this whole time. And, um, so she changed it to the way that it's supposed to be read. Um, but the beans like wouldn't jump anymore because she was like thinking about how the mantra should be and how she used to do it. So she wasn't concentrated anymore. And so the beans like didn't jump. And like when she, and then she found that it was really difficult to do it like the correct way. So she went back to doing it the old way. And then the beans like jumped again from one bowl to the other. So I guess like this story is telling you that like it, it doesn't like the power. It's more of so like, where you're, if you, whether your mind is concentrated or not, whether rather than like getting the, getting the chant right. It's like, it's more important to be like in a meditative state than to get every single word right or sound good or something. Mm -hmm. I think also, of course, when we're chanting in Buddhism, we're not trying to make beans hop from one bowl to another. Um, if that happens to you, that's great. But like, don't feel bad if you can't get your beans to jump and, don't try necessarily to get beans to jump. Um, but I think the story is really good in teaching that, like Catherine said, it's not about getting the chant right. But in my experience, it's also, if you know the, how the chant is supposed to go, it's very helpful to see whether or not you're concentrated by whether or not you mess up in the chant. Because typically for me, I realize that if I start getting distracted, I'm going to either skip a line completely, um, I'll fumble on the chanting and things like that. And so I think it's also a really great way 
of keeping ourselves in check. That being said, if you're not sure of the pronunciation for some of the words and things like that, that's not too big of an issue. But having something to like check yourself against just to make sure that you're not being distracted without knowing that you're being distracted is, is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so while we're doing the chanting, when you go to a temple, you may see like people wearing robes. So at our, for lay people, we wear like, a black robe, which is called the Haiching, and then also a brown robe over it. And then if you see the venerables, the monks and the nuns, they may be wearing like an orange thing or some other color. And that's the robes that you wear during a chanting ceremony. And there's like a specific way that you put it on and a specific way to fold it as well. Yeah. And so the robes represent upholding the precepts. So the brown robe for lay people and then the outer robe for monastics, they can be a lot of different colors. Those represent the precepts because you get those robes when you receive the precepts at a temple or somewhere. The black robe that a lot of lay people will wear and also a lot of monastics will wear underneath their precept robe, uh, the Hai Ching is available for anybody. It's essentially just formal wear for um, ancient Chinese people. And so it's not associated with the precepts, but the outer robe is. And so when we wear it for Buddhist services, it reminds us that we are upholding the precepts and we are um, people who have received the precepts. Mm-hmm. And the robes that the Hai Ching that we wear is a great example of how Buddhism has localized in the Chinese culture, because back in the Buddha's time, they wore robes, but their their right shoulder is completely exposed. Because of the hot and humid weather in India, they didn't wear that much clothing. And I would say like the precept robes that we have now, like the brown ones, are kind of like a version of that. And then the Hai Ching is like what, because Chinese, in Chinese culture, we, we really value modesty and stuff. So they like to cover up. So I would say like underneath that, the Hai Ching is like a part of Chinese culture, but it also doesn't lose the, the robes during the Buddhist time, which is like the precept robes that we wear. Mm -hmm. So I think localization in the Buddhist sense is always sort of a compromise. So in China, you can't have your right shoulder bare because of modesty reasons, but also because it's just freezing. And depending on where you are in China, you wouldn't survive um, bearing your right shoulder all the time. So I think it's a very clever way of merging the two cultures. One where you have to be covered up, but then the other where you're also wearing the robe of the Buddhas um, to represent the precepts. So I don't know how it's going to end up 100, 200 years from now in the United States. Maybe we'll have our own sort of American <laughs> version of the robes. I don't know what those quite look like yet, but it'll be interesting. And if I get to see it, well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, um, it would definitely be interesting. We have, there are lots of different, uh, materials to pick from. Speaking about localization, though, like in Buddha's time, we also, I think we talked about it in previous episodes as well. Um, in Buddha's time, the Sangha and the Buddha would go out into the town to beg for alms and basically going door to door and like seeing who has food. 
to give them. Obviously, in China, it's a much more, they would see it as uncivilized, and it would just cause like a huge mess if people did that. So when Buddhism, and this developed over like hundreds of years, but in a traditional Chinese monastery, people would do meals. It's called formal meal, and they, it's it's like this whole it's this whole thing. Like it's it's a whole like ceremony. Andrew, would you like to explain? Sure. So formal dining is the Chinese adaptation of Indian style sort of alms round. So instead of picking your own food like at a buffet line, it's all served to you. So there are people who are serving the food. And they'll go down and everybody will have two bowls and a plate. And so they'll fill the bowl with rice and soup and the plate will be filled with vegetables and things like that. And so you get all of this food and you can't choose what you want. You get what you are offered. And that's essentially incorporating part of the begging for alms thing. The only exception is if you have allergies, because, of course, for health reasons, if you can't eat something, then you can't eat something. And they'll they'll be sure to note that. But otherwise, you have to accept everything. And it's a really good lesson in not being attached to the flavor of the food. Because especially for me, so at my temple, it's done every Sunday after the Chinese Buddhist service. So I was eating. And of course, I don't know why this happened to me. Whatever causes and conditions led to this. But they were serving bitter melon. And I didn't know. So it ended up on my soup. So it was in my soup. And as soon as I took a sip of it, I thought, oh dear, how am I going to finish this bowl of soup? <laughs> so I put it back down and I started eating everything else. But I realized, I knew the entire time that I would have to finish the soup eventually. And I was just so averse to it. I didn't want to taste that taste again. And I kept telling myself, like, but this is the offering that I am given. I have no choice. And so <laughs> I didn't want to waste food. I couldn't waste food. They won't let you waste food. So eventually I took it. And after drinking it, I mean, I thought to myself, did it really need to be such a big deal? Like, immediately I could see how one little piece of bitter melon had affected my entire mental state during lunch. I was so anxious and worried and how I was completely <laughs> disgusted all for a tiny, like an inch size piece of melon. It's ridiculous. But um, I think that's really the value of formal dining and not being able to choose your food. It really helps us become more mindful of all of the little habits that we have, the little things that we like and dislike. And these are things that we can give ourselves, we can always get good things and the things that we like, and we can always avoid things that we don't like in our daily lives. But when push comes to shove and you're in a Buddhist monastery setting, you have to face these habits and you have to work through them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could just, I don't have like that big of a issue with bitter melon i actually like bitter melon so <laughs> um <laughs> so, but yeah there's definitely like and i'm so i'm very fortunate that i 
grew up eating everything, so I'm not that picky. But I definitely agree with like the mindfulness part of it because you learn to appreciate what you're given and stuff. Because if you really think about the origins of this food, it all comes from everyone's donation. That's how they're able to get this food and put it in front of you, and all the preparation and stuff like that. There's like a million things that go into it, and in formal meal, they actually tell you there's a chant that goes before. So you you chant this verse that offers, and the the lead chanter would chant, contemplate on your food and stuff like that, and or else it'll be hard to digest. Like that's basically the gist of that chant. And since you can't talk during the meal, you you're really starting to you really like do think about okay, where does my food come from and you know, what did I do today to deserve this food? And it really makes you like grateful and makes you like not want to waste anything that's in front of you. And that you have this responsibility to, after you eat this food, to like help people. And like, you know, it's not just eating because for enjoyment, it's for the food to strengthen your body and that you can keep on serving others afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, this is something that I think is very applicable outside of Buddhism too. When you're eating outside of a temple and you're not in a formal dining session, these are things that you can still practice. You can still be mindful. You can still think of the food. You can still reflect on what you like and dislike and trying to avoid that tendency to avoid things you dislike and only get the things that you do like. And I think it is a very helpful practice because it's changed how I've interacted with meals. So in college, at the dining halls, it's a buffet, but I tried to get a little bit of everything, everything that's vegetarian anyways, and tried to not have these aversions. And then also as I'm eating, try not to waste any of the food because, again, it's not coming from anyone's donations this time, but it's coming from the hard work of all of the employees who prepare it, all of the people who helped grow it and get it onto this table for me. And so it's something that I find very applicable to everybody's life because we all need to eat. Mm-hmm. I think through formal dining, it has really opened my mind up to a lot of different foods and that I'm able to not just jump to like, okay, I don't like this, so I'm not going to consume it. It's more of like it opened my mind up to different foods and like different cultures, the different foods that the other culture may use it may not be the same as mine but I can still learn to appreciate because this is what they eat on a daily basis so yeah it taught me to appreciate everything and like to really be open-minded and because of formal dining I'm able to like try different cuisines and stuff and appreciate different cultures and yeah that's That's something I think is really valuable that comes out of formal dining. Definitely. So I also think I was talking a lot about um, aversions and foods that I didn't like. But on the flip side, when there are foods that I do like, sometimes it's very hard to stop myself from getting more of that particular thing and getting a lot of that particular thing. I think the sort of like and dislike is very natural, but informal dining, it makes us very aware of it because we don't get to choose. And actually, I, if I remember correctly, don't you have a very nice story of things that you did like 
I think you were served bubble tea or something once. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just, I almost forgot. You didn't mention that. Okay. Okay. I'm glad that Andrew brought this up because I completely forgot. So when you go to the Buddhist college, you're pretty much deprived of like the things that you were used to. So for me, I really like milk tea and it's called like bubble tea. Some people like might know it as bubble tea. And it was like month four into Buddhist college. And I haven't had like a cup of bubble tea for the four months. And I was like, and there are some days where I would literally be dreaming about bubble tea. Like in my <laughs> dreams, there would be bubble tea. And, and I wake up and it's like this huge disappointment. But luckily, so for me, there was like this celebration at the temple and like there are a lot of visitors and stuff a lot of people visiting the dining hall and you know more people means that they are going to have like better not necessarily better foods but like a more variety of foods and they ha and they made bubble tea like my dream came true and they made like this huge batch for like everyone and it's something that you can so after the start of the formal meal, right? I was like, sometimes they would walk around with this special thing. It might not be bubble tea, it might be something else, but that day it happened to be bubble tea. And when the person came to me in front of me, I pushed my bowl forward to signal that I wanted bubble tea. And that happened four times, maybe. <laughs> I got so much bubble tea that day. And so after the meal, I was like, you know, feeling great and stuff because I got bubble tea but later it was not good because <laughs> I actually had a stomach ache and it wasn't worth drinking four bowls of bubble tea and so I learned my lesson next time if it happens I'm not going to drink full four bowls of bubble tea that that was definitely karma that got me there like I should not have been greedy and um that's something that formal meal has taught me as well, to not be greedy and not get a bunch of stuff, like a bunch of the stuff that you like. Also, doesn't that go very well with um, the verse that you were talking about earlier? If your mind is scattered, then the food will be hard to digest, right? Yes. So, <laughs> and it definitely was. <laughs> like, <clears throat> the five, like, the five contemplations basically... The first one is like contemplating where your food comes from and being grateful. The second one is like contemplating on whether what you did today was like equivalent to the food that you're eating. And the third one is to guard yourself against greed, which that just went out the window when I saw the bubble tea. And then the fourth one is, um, you know, are you eating this? because you want to like strengthen your body and stuff. It's like, it's medicine. For, you should see the food as medicine for your body. And the fifth one is um, the food should help you help others. So yeah, those are the five contemplations during formal meal. And it's like, if you go to any like Shan temple or they should have it like in their dining halls, like it should be on the wall or something. And 
that's a very good practice to um, to do during eating because it really helps you to like think of all foods as equal so you're not picky. But yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not proud of the the bubble tea <laughs> incident. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not proud of the bitter melon incident either. That was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's our it's we all have our our fatal flaws. But yeah, so the thing about formal dining is you have to put your bowls and plates in a specific position. You have to hold your bowl in a certain way and do all of this and that. And it really helps keep, at least for me, it keeps me mindful of what I'm doing. Because a lot of times, and I've become more prone to this recently because there's just a lot going a lot, uh, there's a lot going on in life. So I'll just mm-hmm. be eating and I'll be on my phone and I'll be on my laptop all at the same time. And I don't really care where I put my bowl or like what I'm doing with my food. But taking the time to just focus on the food, to think about what I'm doing with the calories that are coming from this food, with the energy that's coming from this food, it's very meaningful. And it's something that I think is lost. The art of the meal is really lost in a busy life. But it's something that really eating does not take that much time. When we eat in um, formal dining, it's actually really efficient. I think there's no more efficient way to do it than that. How can anybody feed like 3,000 people in 30 minutes? But you can do it with formal dining and it's amazing. Um, so I think including that in our lives is very, very positive because otherwise if I'm eating and I'm reading and I'm writing emails, that one meal can take up to like two hours. Mm-hmm. And you're not aware of what you're eating as well. So you may overeat or just like completely skip a meal. Like either way, like those are not good options for your body. Because mm-hmm. yeah, also because formal dining happens at the same time every day. So yeah. it's very regular. Oh, I miss, I miss like the regular schedule that I used to have. Now I go to, it's just like, it's hard. Like when you eat at different times of the day. Cause like it's good for your body physically to have a regular schedule. And so formal dining. Yeah. At, at a temple, especially like you do, you, you have like the same things going on every day. You're not really concerned with like, Oh, like what am I, what am I going to have? Like, you're not really worried about like where, what you're going to do. Cause you know what you're going to do already. And Formal dining, unless you're the person working in the kitchen, it's also like really convenient for you because you just sit down, you eat, and then you leave. So that's the beauty of eating at Temple. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's a bit harder on those who work in the kitchen, especially people who are washing the dishes afterwards. But something else I've learned from formal dining is also thinking about others and being considerate of others, too. So after we finish our meals in formal dining, we'll also do our best to use our napkin to wipe down the bowls and stuff to clean it as much as we can to make someone else's job a lot easier because they're the ones who have to wash 3,000, actually no, 6,000 bowls and like 3,000 plates. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's just really, really overwhelming. Yeah, for sure. So something else about formal dining is that, well, when we were first starting to eat, we'll take three bites of rice or whatever the main dish is And with each bite, we'll make a vow. So the first one is to 
end all unwholesome acts, to not do any negative things. The second one is to do all virtuous things, um, practice all virtues and do all good deeds. And then the last one is to help all sentient beings. And so I think with each meal, when we renew these vows, it ingrains it a bit deeper and we're committing ourselves to the practice of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And something as simple as you don't really think about making those vows when you're eating because it's like something that we have to do. We do every day. But, you know, because it is something it's like a mundane thing that we do. That's like that's where we should start. You know, we should start from the little things and then expand and then expand our vows to the greater things afterwards. Mm -hmm. And of course, when we make these vows, it's not with the idea that we'll be able to do it the day after. And that's why we have to keep making it. We have to keep reaffirming that and working towards it until we do get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. Um, for this episode, we wanted to address kind of some of the more common questions about etiquette and why we do things the way that we do. Um, if any of you listening have any other questions, you can always email us or leave a comment on our website. We will answer them. Mm -hmm. And thank you. This episode actually came out of a request. So thank you, Leanne, for sending this to us. And if anybody else has the request, like Catherine said, please don't hesitate to email us. We will be very responsive. Mm -hmm. And thank you to everyone who is listening and supporting us. We apologize that we took like a two week break from our podcasting because of our respective temple responsibilities. But we are, we will be updating regularly. Um, our episodes should be out on Tuesdays and then yeah, we'll have, we'll try to keep a more regular schedule from now on. Thank you for being patient with us, everybody. Yeah, and thank you to everyone who is working on this project with us so um, so that we can make it more accessible to, to the general public. All right. See you all next time. This is Budapod. Bye.